Tonight on Arena, Brett Easton Ellis on his new novel The Shards and Babylon Let the Wrong One In and Bank of Dave are the movies up for review. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Set in Los Angeles in 1981, Brett Easton Ellis' new novel revolves around a group of alienated high school teenagers numbing themselves against the world with booze, drugs, movies and music. All rather like those we met in Brett's debut novel, Less Than Zero. Here to explain that we're not actually in a time warp is Brett Easton Ellis, who is the main character, or at least shares a name with the main character and narrator of the show. And delighted to have you on the programme with us this evening, Brett. Um, A novel is a dream that asks itself to be written, you say, or the narrator says at the beginning of of The Shards. But this was a novel that that had to beg. I think it was asking to be written for a long time, was it? It was. I first uh, became aware of this novel wanting to be written when I actually was 17 and 18. And at that same school that I write about in The Shards. And it just took me about 40 years to finally be able to process the story, what the narrative was really about, and really at a point in my life where I could be fully honest and completely open about certain things that happened to me during that senior year and that happened to my friends and certain relationships I had, and also uh, losing one's innocence, moving out of adolescence and becoming an adult a couple of key things happened that moved me through that process. So it just took a long time to write this book because I don't think I could have written it at 26 mm. or 32. It was, I had to be an old man. Right. Okay. And, and it, the Brett Easton Ellis who's in the book is writing a novel, uh, is writing less than zero. So obviously yes. huge, huge similarities with you. But I wonder yes. to what extent, you know, I, I take your point about wanting to be an old, uh, an older man to, to kind of process some of the material that you, you give to us in the shards. It, it it does suggest that perhaps less than zero at the very least, and maybe some of your other novels too, were kind of, were, were ways of not writing the shards, if, if that makes sense. Well, yes, in a lot of ways. I was working on Less Than Zero and then I put it away and then began the shards because I, was, I had started Less Than Zero, I think, when I was 16. And the shards came to me at about 18. And I put Less Than Zero away and I started to work on the shards and then very quickly realized I just don't have the chops for this. Less Than Zero is easier. You know, basically a much easier, shorter, more compact book. And um, but, you know, in, in a lot of ways, every book I write is a reflection of where I was at the time. They might not be about me and they might have some rather outlandish characteristics to them, especially if you talk about American Psycho. Mm. But at the same time, they are a reflection of where I was emotionally and even physically, whether it was New York or a college or back in Los Angeles. They are in, in a weird way, me uh, finding out uh, answers to why I'm in pain or why I'm confused about something. Writing has always been kind of a healing uh, uh, Mm. experience for me. What was the pain you were in then, or what were you trying to heal from when it came to the writing of the shards? Well, a lot of things. One was that I realized time was passing more quickly than ever now, that I was in my mid to late 50s, and I was getting nostalgic for that period. And I realized that it hadn't been curated in the way that I suppose 
events are curated now. The places that we all went to when we were 17 and 18 here in Los Angeles are all gone. The malls, the movie theaters, the coffee shops, the restaurants, they're gone. And they weren't curated, meaning I couldn't find pictures of them online. And that started to haunt me a lot about that period. And then there were certain friends of mine from that period who I haven't spoken to in 40 years that were not online either, that had no online presence. And I did want to apologize to a few of them about my kind of crazy, youthful behavior when things got out of control, what I described in the shards. And I think that was the impetus to write the book, was to go back to that time to kind of clarify for everyone that I might have hurt or I might have misled and let them know, look, this was what I was going through. This was what was happening. And um, I hope you uh, take it in the spirit in which it's offered. Given then that you didn't have social media and you didn't have Facebook pages to look at and loads of online material to look at in terms of what what in the places and the people from, from back in 1981, you had to rely on, on memory as you more than any writer, as, as any writer knows, and I'm sure you're aware of it too, memory's not, not, not a reliable chap to have in the room with you always. No, it's not. But the book is not entirely, um, it doesn't entirely rely on a documentary like memory. Mm. This is kind of a golden, hazy uh, remembrance of things that have passed a long time ago. And in a weird way, I was romanticizing that period uh, when I was writing this book in 2020, 2021, Mm. about 40 years earlier. I, it, it is a kind of romanticized version of L.A. that it still managed, manages to border on truth enough so that I'm not too bothered by it. But um, there's, a, there's also an emotional reality because a lot of the things in this book are quite violent, um, you know, and there, is, there are aspects to it that are quite dark. But on an emotional level, this is probably the truest book that I've ever written and and I just come clean about kind of my origin story in a way, yeah, yeah. where this writer was created and how. Now, I, I'm, I'm interested that you use the word romanticizing in the midst of all of that, because I, I was kind of taken aback, particularly in the opening section of the novel. I thought, Betty Snellis has, has gone all cuddly and teddy bearish the way he's speaking to me in these opening pages about trying to write his novel. But it wasn't too long before I was pulled back to earth with because the, the type of violence, the type of uh, explicit scenes, etc., that are the hallmark of some of the other novels are certainly there in, in the shards. But there does seem to be a warmer, less minimalistic attitude or tone or style in this book. Were you aware of that writing it or were you conscious of making it that way? I wasn't conscious of that, but I know what you're talking about. It's been called here in the United States, the new sincerity that a lot of writers seem to be afflicted with. I don't know what's caused this to happen. But, um, I, you know, in a way, look, if it's not about sincerity, I mean, because I always feel sincere when I write a book. I think American Psycho is a sincere book. So that's always part of my process. And I, I want to tell a story and I want to stay true to a narrator's voice and I want to get the, uh, the, that voice down correctly uh, in ways that I like. Um, but... Sure. If I'm going to write about this time, uh, adolescence on the cusp of adulthood, the corruption, the corruption that allows that to happen, then I've got to be vulnerable. I have to be a vulnerable writer and really just lay it all out. And so 
there was there was an aspect of that that was, as I said earlier, a kind of healing thing because I felt very open here. I felt that there was nothing I needed to hide. I didn't need to play any stylistic tricks. I had no urge to. And I felt that it, it, this was the first time that I was kind of, um, I suppose, completely honest with my own feelings. Not that I, not that I didn't want to be before, but now again, I think age, age mm. does something to you, and, and and you do feel okay. It's time. So you know the, we we get the sense, I suppose, that that the Brett that we meet in 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 Buckley uh, in his senior in his final year of senior in his final senior year, you know that he's he's a man who's trying desperately, a young man who's trying desperately to fit in, and certainly his sexuality is something that, while he shares it with men that he falls in love with and has very strong uh, and active physical relationships with, he has to hide it, which is. I, I, I'm still kind of surprised that in 1981 that would have been the case that uh, homosexuality would had would have to have been hidden. Was that the the milieu of Buckley? Was that something else that caused him to hide that? It's so surprising because when I went back uh, to that time from uh, you know being here in 2020, 2021 when I was writing the book. And then going back to 1981 and writing about this character in that time, I was again shocked that, yes, it was still um, a world about the closet, especially among young people. Now, there was, as I write about, a kind of secret society where the boys interacted as kind of secret agents, which made everything slightly more titillating and dangerous and illicit. And there was a certain pleasure in that as well. Um, but yes, there was this, and it was strange because in the culture at that time, in the late 70s and early 80s, there was this burgeoning kind of gay aesthetic going on, whether it was in Calvin Klein advertising, you know, those, those underwear ads with the model against the what, or there were, there was certainly Prince was huge, David Bowie, there was still American Gigolo photographed a man in a way he had never been shot before, sexualizing him in a way. So there was this thing going on in the culture that you think would have opened up a door, let's say. But it really didn't. Uh, a little bit when I went to college uh, a year or two later, which I talk about in the Rules of Attraction, but uh, it was still a world of the closet, even in that moment and in that milieu, Los Angeles and Beverly Hills, of all places. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's, I suppose, the surprising aspect of it in, in many ways. But what did strike me about, particularly in and around the scenes uh, of physical intimacy between Brett and, and other males, I, I get the sense that that's when I see most of the real Brett, that that's the most honest Brett, 17-year-old yeah. Brett is. Yes. yes, completely. Much, much more so than the 17 or 18-year-old Brett figure of Clay in Less Than Zero, yeah. where Clay is very, very shadowed in a way and very um, kind of careful with the reader, uh, very minimalist. And I tried to write the shards in that same style back in 1982, and it just didn't work. That style suited the randomness and the story of Less Than Zero much better than it would have suited the shards. But yes, there was, I mean, of course, when you're writing about the, 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 the sexual scenes, and let's just be honest, 
there are sex scenes between men and women mm. and men and in this group. Yeah, yeah. You know, Brett did have a girlfriend at that time and she was, you know, a, a young, healthy teenage girl. So there was that aspect that I had to go back to and write about. Um, but I did felt I, I, throughout this entire book, not just with the sexual scenes, but with everything that I was telling the reader as this older man, because the book is narrated by the older man. It's not narrated by the younger the young man. Guy. Yeah. He's talking about it. And I think that's all the difference in the world because I think that 17 or 18-year-old would be much more reticent and much more careful about revealing himself than the older man who's heading towards 60 who just does not care as much anymore. Yeah, you that can. was the difference. Yeah, you, you, yeah, I suppose you can say it now as a, as a heading towards 60 man, much easier than you could say it at that time as a, as a, as a late teen heading towards college. There is a, a serial murderer here, however. Uh, that That's a fascination that seems to have, you know, followed you through many of the novels. What what does that give to the novel as, as a literary you? Uh, what literary use did it have for you in the novel? Well, you know, if I'm look, looking back at that time, if I'm looking back at my childhood of the 1970s and my adolescence that was cresting at the uh, beginning of the 1980s, I lived in a world where serial killers were like the wallpaper in the room. They were all over California, crisscrossing each other. There was news about them every night. Often four or five would be working, you know, uh, the San Fernando Valley or out way out in the desert or, or wherever. You were always aware of this thing that was happening. And it was frightening. And it really was impactful as a child and as a teenager. I often talk about this with many other people I know who grew up in Los Angeles during that same time, you know, comparing yeah. our feelings about certain serial killers. So obviously it was something that has stayed with me. And if I wanted to write about this particular moment, 1981, when I was 17 in Los Angeles, it had to be referenced somehow. It yeah. had to be a part yeah. of whatever was going on, just like the music, just like the films they go to see. So, um, and, and you're right, it has stayed with me ever since. And obviously American Psycho is a byproduct of that. Yeah, and, and I should say that I mean, it really evokes that, that period of the 80s in, in terms of the popular culture, the music and all that atmosphere. It really brings that, uh, it, it jumps off the page at you. But, but finally then, I'm wondering, you said uh, starting out that in some ways this was a way of apologising to some of your friends uh, in and around that time. Have you had any reaction from them, the, the real people around this book? Um, do you want to know what they and, and how they feel about what you've said in the shards? All, all I will say is that, again, I have not spoken to these people in over 40 years, <clears throat> but I did get a text, a text or, a, or a, a, something on my Google alerts from someone I did know back then, who I did know in 1981. And all it said is, of all the names you could have given me, why in the hell was it Debbie? <laughs> okay. Well. So that's one, that's the only thing that I've And I didn't answer back yet, but that's the only one so far. Right. Well, I suppose if the only thing she's annoyed about is the name, you'll be all right. She's not too annoyed at you. Brett, thanks so much for joining us this evening and for being with us. Thank you so much, Sean. That's Brett Easton Ellis speaking to us about his latest novel, The Shards, which is published by Swift Press.
And so to our film reviews on this Thursday evening, we will be going back to the Hellenistic days of early Hollywood, uh, directed by Damien Chazelle and boasting a heavyweight cast that includes Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. Babylon has divided critics on many levels. Wonder how we'll get on with it this evening. We'll be talking also about Irish comedy horror, Let the Wrong One In, directed by Conor McMahon, full of cartoonish gore, and Bank of Dave, a feel-good comedy starring Roy Kinnear as a local businessman from Burnley uh, who decides to set up a not-for-profit Bank. Dave Hanratty and Gemma Cray will be talking to us about those films. But before that, let us talk about the BAFTA nominations which have come out. And I suppose in terms of Irish performances, Irish films, Irish writers and films with an Irish interest, we're talking about 15 nominations in total. Not surprising, I suppose, Gemma, that the big the big winner in this regard is the uh, the Banshees of Inish Aaron. Yeah, 10 nominations, uh, Best Actor, Colin Farrell, Best Supporting Actress, Kerry Condon, Brendan Gleeson and Barry Keoghan are Best Supporting Actors, so they can go head to head. Um, so, and, and like that as well, I mean, it's definitely one that's well deserved. Yeah, and, and it's, best, it's in for Best Film and Outstanding British Film uh, as well. We leave the British film aspect of that to the one side, <laughs> just because there'll be lots to talk about that. And Colleen Kuhn figures in this list as well, uh, Barry, uh, Barry, who I don't know who's, Div. Uh, uh, Colin Barade, of course, is the director there. Perhaps that's where that came from. I mean, yeah, which, and this, of course, is ahead of the Oscar nominations, which are out next week, I think. Uh, it's the, the on Colleen Kuhn story has been an incredible thing. I mm. mean, one of the biggest word of mouth hits as well. And now seeing it travel across the water and also into international audiences it seems people can't get enough of this film and it is of course a beautiful beautiful film it's an amazing work and uh, yeah I mean like between that and even like Paul Meskel being up for After Sun uh, Daryl McCormick on the rise as well this is without question one of the great like mm. you know nomination sweeps so far and hopefully that will translate into actual BAFTA gold but we'll have to wait and see yeah because it, it's up for two nominations in fact isn't it a film not in the English language where it's up against All Quiet in the Western Front Argentina, Argentina 1985 Corsair decision to leave those are the films it's up against there it's also up for adapted screenplay again against <laughs> All Quiet on the Western Front uh, uh, Living She Said and The Whale the other films in that category I, I would have thought it's, it's in with a good chance Gemma or am I just biased um, no I think it's one of those films that no matter what the hype is when you actually sit down to see it it's it's undeniably beautiful it's less is more the performances the subtleness mm. the strength of the story the like it, like how it transcends language and actually I think one of the biggest appeals of it is is the minimal use of dialogue so it really pulls on all those heartstrings plays with tension it's just stunning and deserves deserves every single award that it picks up yeah uh, I, I, it, I don't know how much we can read regarding the Oscars with the BAFTAs. I suppose it's not that close a thing, but it's, it has to augur well. It does, yeah. And like the BAFTAs, obviously, like it is the British, you know, Academy, mm. you know, Film and Television Awards. And like, you know, Bill Nighy, for example, is in the same category as Colin Farrell, Daryl McCormick and Paul Meskell. And it wouldn't be surprising if Bill Nighy, you know, he's amazing in that yeah. film. But I mean, uh, they tend to kind of look after their own and that's fine. But I think it is showing you that it has been an unbelievable, 2022 is an unbelievably strong year for Irish cinema. That is being recognised whether it was the Golden Globes, the Critics' Choice. I know Banshees was kind of shut out of the Critics' Choice, but BAFTA, Oscars to come. Uh, it does augur well. And I'd be very surprised. Out of 15, we've got a pretty good chance here. Yeah, like, and, and Bill Nye up for, for living in the leading acting leading actor car- 
category. Colin Farrell for the Banshees of Inisher and Daryl McCormick for Good Luck to you, Leo Grande and Paul Meskell for, for Aftersun. Three very strong contenders now. The Bill Nye living kind of jumps out at you as well, doesn't it? He was brilliant in that movie. Yeah, and actually let's not forget as well The Wonder. So it's um, produced by Element Pictures and Screen Ireland and it's based on Emma Donoghue's book, so really strong links. It was filmed here as well, so we're not doing too badly with that. And we also have an Irish special effects Oscar winner uh, Richard Banaham mm. for his work on Avatar. So we're 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 sneaking in with a, with a good few, um, with a good bit of talent there. Uh, uh, Kerry Condon is also up for best supporting actress. This is for the Banshees of Inish Erin. She's Scottish. Is no, she? she's Irish. Is she? No, no, that's how good she is. She's, she's tricked me and with her accent. And that's been the thing. I mean, yeah. even like seeing Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, when they yeah. were on any American talk show circuit there promoting Banshees, they were at pains to say, Carrie Condon should be here with us or yeah. hopefully she's going to be on next week on the show because uh, she steals the film, I think, for an awful lot of people. I mean, she like absolutely walks away. I must away say she it. really shone in the film for me. And yeah. I, I, I wanted performs. her to be, in, and I, was, I agreed with both Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell on that very fact. I thought, why isn't she there with them? And then we have Brendan and Barry Keoghan up against each other in the supporting actor. I don't know how they're working out supporting actor, lead actor around the the the, the, the three men. I would have thought Brendan and, and Colin were pretty much leading characters in the film. Yeah. Oh, maybe Barry's in trouble for meeting. I think there was the stories going around of him eating all the, the crunchy no cornflakes on Colin Farrell. So maybe it's come yes. back to bite him on the bum and then they put him in for that instead. Uh, and, and of course, whoever does win any award for the Banshees of Inish Aaron has a real job now when it comes to an acceptance speech Colin Farrell knocked it out of the park it was brilliant yeah and like he was fair play to him as well for saying like you can forget about the piano when they're playing them off stage because that continues to happen I mean Michelle Yeoh had an amazing speech as well uh, Brendan Fraser had one of the Critics' Choice Awards and in every case at one point here comes the piano it's like what's the point of this if you're not going to mm. let the actors stand up there and be themselves Colin Farrell's always been very very good at being that kind of natural very charming very self-effacing yeah. thing I would love to see him win the BAFTA I'd love to see him win the Oscar and I must say as well mentioned him briefly earlier on but Paul Mescaline after Sun. Yes, after some, yeah. That performance is unbelievable. That was my favourite film of last year. Heart-shatteringly brilliant. And he doesn't seem to be in the conversation for the Oscars, so I'd be very, very happy if he took home the BAFTA for After Sun. All right, well, with 15 to interest us, as you have both said, I think we, we can look forward to, to something special. All right, let us move on to our film reviews now. Uh, we're starting with Damien Chazelle. Uh, we're back in the silent, really, the, the transition the, between the silent film to the birth of the talkies. Babylon. Babylon suggests to me there's a lot going on here. And if you see the trailers or even the poster, you say, what part of the poster am I supposed to look at? There's a lot happening here. There is. Gemma. It's a, it's a, it's a big, huge ensemble cast of different characters who are in that kind of golden age of Hollywood as it transitions, as you said, from silent air to talkies. But it's not quite as sweet and saccharine as some of the old classics we might be more familiar with that feature later in the film. Yeah, it's warts and all. Like the the 1920s was a, a pretty lawless liberal time. Um, there was uh, jazz, drugs, flappers sex happening everywhere on, on screen. There was a lot of um, mm. uninhibited um, ac- extras on the, the set of this. Loads of huge um, set piece performances, music, undulating, sensual shots moving around. Like it's just, it's it's very intense, um, very uh, capturing that mood of the era. But then as it shifts over to a conservative leaning, um, more business orientated mm. Uh, 
side of, of Hollywood changes, like something that we're much more yeah. familiar with from those 1950s films that we remember. Am I am I going to get into trouble with myself if I ask you to try to explain what happens in this film, <laughs> Dave? It's, it's, it's quite convoluted. It really is, yeah. I mean, it's 189 minutes long as well, so like that's it's a mess. They're it's all doing mess, the two-hour, um, the three-hour films now, aren't they? It kind of has mm. to be, though. It is exhausting and it's exhaustive, and I was I must say I was quite mesmerised by this. It essentially focuses on a number of, of, of characters. You've got Brad Pitt playing a fading mm. silent movie star called Jack Conrad. His time in the sun is kind of waning. You've got Margot Robbie as this explosive... Like a, a character who is announced via a literal car crash and she shows up and steals the show, becomes a star overnight, essentially, and you see her rise and I guess the fall has to happen. Centred in the middle of this, there's a Mexican-American immigrant called Manny who encounters both of them at a party. The first 30 minutes of this film, by the way, is a party. It is a bacchanal. You've seen almost nothing like this ever. The money on the screen is ridiculous. Uh, and we see him rise through the Hollywood studio system and it's about them colliding with various other supporting characters. You've got a trumpet player, you've got a, perfor- a cabaret performer, you've got a journalist played by Gene Smart and it's about their lives as Hollywood, as Gemma says, changes from one era to another. Right. A much more over-the-top, almost repugnant era into something a bit more safe. Let us listen to a clip featuring Margot Robbie as Nelly Leroy. And this is in the scene that you're mentioning there, Dave, with Manny Torres, played by Diego Calva. And oh, sure, they both think they're all they're going to be great in time, don't they? What about you? Sorry? If you could go anywhere in the whole world, where would you go? I always want to be part of something bigger. Love that answer. Something that lasts, that means something. Something yes. more important than life. It's written in the stars. I am a star. If I had money, I would only spend it on things that were fun, you know? Not boring things like taxes. I'm just wanting for everyone to party forever. Everyone to party forever. A clip there from uh, Babylon, Dave Hanrate and Gemma Cray, our two reviewers this evening. It's, it sounds in some ways, and even, again, I go back to the, the poster and, and what I've heard in terms of uh, reading around it. This makes Baz Luhrmann look like some kind of understated Chekhov, really, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, <laughs> I said, like, it's like he went off his antidepressants <laughs> for this film because, again, you have those big, fabulous set mm. pieces, but, and a sort of tragic look love story, um, unrequited love, uh, a very fast-paced artistic creative, like all the elements of Baz Luhrmann's films are here, but that sort of fairy tale um, neatness and that very structured feel is certainly missing from this. Um, I think the original script was 180 pages, so it actually didn't veer too far away from what the original plans were. No cutting cutting done there by Mr. Chazelle. The original version of it was 40 minutes. Apparently there was big whole sections down in Mexico that that were cut out from it. And it's funny because you do feel like some of the arcs are a little bit curtailed. Like you (laughs) <laughs> in, in, in over three hours. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Um, look at some of the performances then, Dave. Uh, Brad Pitt as an ageing movie star, Jack Conrad. Yeah, he's outstanding. Uh, it's very meta casting because obviously Brad Pitt is at a stage of his career where he may not be the pretty boy that he once was, although he's still a ravishingly beautiful looking man. Uh, but he's very much playing, if you've seen the film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which he was in with Margot yeah. Robbie as well, he's playing something more akin to the Leonardo DiCaprio character in that film, a, a film star who his fortunes begin to fade, 
how will he deal with that? And the character is very interesting because he's not an out and out villain, but he is, you know, someone who has substance abuse problems and he uh, is a womanizer, uh, but he's not like the picture of toxic masculinity necessarily. This is a very, very tragic character. I think Brad Pitt's been one of the best working actors for a very, very long time. I'm Again, it's weird that we talked about the awards there. Yeah. He's not really in contention, but I would give him a Best Supporting Actor nomination for sure. It's a very, very gorgeous and layered performance. And again, leaning into the real life Brad Pitt, which is similar with the Margot Robbie casting. She's a superstar as well. And in that regard, they are being positioned to kind of make a commentary on almost their real life yeah. at the same time. So is it is it despite the fact that it is big and sprawling, is it essentially is that the, the center of the film is the two of them, the Brad Pitt character and the Margot Robbie character? Gemma? Probably them as viewed through the eyes of Manny. Like Manny is sort of the the the, the glue that holds all the story arcs together. Yeah. I think his arc is is not necessarily the most developed. Um, he does he does kind of build his career as a producer, and we are seeing he becomes part of the system when before he was a doe-eyed. Mm. Um, innocent young guy assistant helping out on sets and you know he becomes part of the problem yeah. in the later scenes um and you see that you see that as well like a lot of the a lot of the the ensemble are asked at some point to sell their soul and it's will they or will they not and then how does that affect them plays out you know this this mm. big industry it swallows them up and spits them out and some come out on top oh, and some don't. You know, I can't read off either of you now how, well, <laughs> how much you enjoyed or didn't enjoy this this film. Does it work overall, Gemma, and stars? Yeah, so we were actually discussing this. I think it is a very beautiful piece of cinema. I think it's, it's a visual spectacle. I think um, Damien does an amazing job of capturing the warts and all the good and the bad of mm. it while still playing homage to it. Like he actually researched a lot of, a lot of that era. Like a lot of these are based on true stories as well, which is quite interesting. And I think he does try to stay as, as authentically true to that. And in, in, in a similar way to, to he did to, to what he did in La La Land. Like he's looking yeah. at that, the, the cost of creativity and and you know the and and the breaking up of a romance okay. in, in many ways. So I think I think he does did an amazing job. I think it was probably like so ambitious. Did it did it does it satisfy it like what you would consider to be a traditional style movie? Probably not either. So that translates yeah. into how many stars? Yeah, sorry, four. <laughs> <laughs> four, okay. So that sounds quite positive. Dave? The truth is, I mean, this thing came out in America in mid-December and it crashed at the box office. Yeah. It's, it's an $80 million budget. Damien Chazelle has torched. He's burned $80 million mm. of big studio money. It's only made about $15 million today ahead of its wider release now in Europe and elsewhere in the world. Critics, very, very divisive as well. So I went in with a lot of trepidation. People are ready to hate this movie. The more I think about this, I saw it on Monday night, the more I think about this, the more I think it might be a secret masterpiece. Now, that's a big thing to say because it is also a complete mess uh, (laughs) and it has one of the worst endings I've ever seen. But again, Gem and I spoke about it for about 20 minutes outside waiting to come in here and like, I just, I can't stop thinking about it. There are, there are sequences in this film that will live long in my memory. Some of the performances are excellent, some aren't. Diego Calva as the centre, the audience surrogate, it doesn't quite work. This is a fiasco. Uh, we'll never see another film like this for a long time. You don't get a film like this every week. It is a hard sell. But I, I, I said three and a half at the start of the week and I'm getting closer to a four. There you go. And it wouldn't be the first mess 
some film that was considered a mess at the time of release that became a hidden masterpiece oh, the, whatever the, number of years the reclamation later. project for this yeah. is going to happen and I it's, think I'm, I'm, I'm on the side of here. You're yeah, ready. You're give starting it a go, it. Starting give it, it give tonight. It a go. All right. So there you go. That's Babylon. Let us move on then to Let the Wrong One In. And even when you say the title of this uh, film from director Conor McMahon, um, you have to, well, I have to smile. A horror set in Dublin, a young supermarket worker discovers his oldest brother is a vampire and has to choose whether to help him or slay him. <laughs> You know. It's a nice setup, I think. I would say many, many siblings <laughs> have wandered that without no need for the vampire. <laughs> for that even, one, yeah, yeah the, their older sibling being a vampire. Um, <laughs> so this is a fabulous camp, over the top, very silly, very silly, very broad, but like so enjoyable. Like think. Bruce Campbell, but again, like for the the kind of eighties nineties kids, so yeah. there's like brilliant casting and Buffy the Vampire Slayer's Anthony Head as as this uh, vengeance seeking, train loving, vampire hunting taxi driver <laughs> who's who's been uh, jilted at the altar by um, his 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 ex Sheila, who mm. who is a vampire, who is who's the biggest villain in this piece, who's played by uh, and very well by Mary Murray. Um, and and her loyal hens are, are up to all sorts. But we're in contemporary Dublin, I'm guessing, Dave Barry. Yeah, this is basically like what if the Lost Boys was set in inner city Dublin, essentially. So you, the main two characters are a pair of brothers, a pair of squabbling brothers. You got um, as a, a Matt played by Carl Rice as a young yeah. actor who I'd never seen before. He's very mm. acquits himself admirably in this. But the real yeah. star of this movie is Owen Duffy, who plays Deco, who basically wakes up one morning after a night out to discover the son doesn't agree with him anymore, and he goes to the house and he's like, "I'm not letting you in." Uh, and okay. of course, it turns into a complete farce it's so over the top let's have a listen and I think I have to say I played this clip earlier on and it's a minute and eight seconds long and I like kind of many laughs I got this time round I got a lot of laughs in a minute and eight, a minute and eight seconds. Owen Duffy as Deco, Carl Rice as you said, Dave as the brother Matt, who's not feeling well, and and he did have a feel of garlic fries the previous <laughs> night as well. Let's have a listen. I'll just stop it there for a second. There is very, very strong language in the midst of this clip, I should tell you. Wait a second. You've been beaten on the neck. You're allergic to sunlight. Not the fuck off. And you don't like the garlic fries. Know what this sounds like? I'm not getting enough vitamin D. Yeah, I need to take some. I think I've torn that's me only clean short. Oh, sorry, buddy. I... Deco, what are you like? Fuck off! Deco, put two and two together. Uh, Mo, you're a vampire. A what? A fucking vampire. What are you insinuating? <laughs> Look at yourself in the mirror. Do you see what I mean? No, that mirror's broke. There's nothing wrong with that mirror. Oh, bollocks. <laughs> yeah, I think... Uh, was it 68 laughs is probably what I got one per one per second I mean it, it, it it's almost pastiche 
in terms of what it's doing with, with the vampire movie. But the idea that garlic fries would cause such trouble is just lovely, isn't it? Oh, it, it, he really does a great job of like, the premise is ridiculous and sharp. The 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 dialogue is, is ridiculous and sharp. There's great physical humour. There's like, there's like these gags that are set up in the beginning. Uh, Dave mentioned as well earlier about the, the repetitiveness of, of, of the mm. humour. Like, it's just so... Um, like it, there's just consistent laughs throughout and I even think most comedy films they sort of peter out towards the end and I actually laughed the whole way through mm. this yeah and, and the performances you've, you've already mentioned Carol Rice the performances are are, are they it, it seems it's not depending on the performances but they're essential to, to carry the, the comedy of it Dave. this is one of the most committed casts I've ever seen because a lot of this comes down to I guess budgetary constraints where you know most of it is set in the house and I mean Conor McMahon has made this is kind of his brand comedy horror and when the gore happens the gore is very effective but the performance is so yeah Owen Duffy in particular who plays Deco the, the stricken uh, hapless vampire that he is this, this performance is so so energetic that I have to imagine every time he went home after shooting he just crashed out and fell asleep because I've never seen such energy especially from an Irish actor it's crazy um, he's turned up to 12 and the film has turned up to 12 which might be a bit of a barrier mm. for some audience because it is very like he's shouting at you all the time and I, eventually like I, I enjoyed some of the more quieter moments when they arrived but it is just breakneck pace for the entire thing it's very very over the top and I think it's designed to be seen at midnight with a full screaming crowd of people it eating knows, garlic fries clearly. yeah presumably handed out by the cinema for free as you walk in I mean like, like, like it knows its audience and again like I mean yeah. when it comes to the actual kind of big moments and, and the, the endless comedy it's just you come out of it absolutely exhausted it, it's quite a contrast to Babylon I will say <laughs> okay stars from you Dave I'll go three it's very charming and the performances really carry it alright and what are you saying Gemma yeah I, I loved it four. A four four for me a four from you right finally then a feel-good movie about a local businessman in Northern England trying to set up a community bank. Uh, echoes of it. It's a wonderful life here, obviously. And the Danny DeVito comedy, Other People's Money. Um, Rory Kinnear is the titular Dave there. A film loosely based on a real-life story. Uh, but, it, it, I mean, even when you say he's going to set up a, a not-for-profit bank, I love him already, Bank of Dave. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, like He's the everyman. You know, he's a local mm. hero. Roy Kinnear is very, very good in this role, I should say. He's charming from the get-go, to use that word I keep using. But mm. um, I, I don't want to steal Gemma's line, so I will say we were talking to this side and Gemma said it feels like this film was written by an algorithm, and it does. And, you know, I'll let, I'll let Gemma explain that a bit more. But, like, this is one of the most low-stakes, low-engagement, by-the-numbers, uh, charming kind of feel-good comedy dramas you'll ever see. I enjoyed it, but it's... It's just so straightforward. I mean, it's here's a local hero. He's a pillar of the community. He loans money to people. He gives the money to charities when they pay it back to him. And he wants to set up his own thing, essentially. Uh, will the evil bankers step in his way? Can the disillusioned lawyer who's come down from London uh, make it work? And, and will he fall in love with Dave's niece? You know, it's all, it's just so box ticking. All right. Well, will he fall in love with Dave's niece? Let's listen to the moment when Dave's niece is Alexandra, played by Phoebe uh, Denver. Will he fall in love with her? Here she is telling him where he might invest some of his money. You know all about waiting times at the A&E. And here they're actually some of the worst in the country, and it's because the people we deal with don't actually need hospital treatment. I mean, their ailments could just as easily be treated by GPs, but it takes, on average, 11 days to get an appointment. And, well, no-one wants to wait that long when they're sick. So we're proposing a walk-in free clinic. They can... Write prescriptions, run diagnostic tests, make referrals. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the NHS agrees, but they've already been paired to the bone. 
and the council weren't interested, so thought I'd try Dave. You know, if you were to register as a charity, that would be a huge incentive for corporate sponsors. I mean, I know it's corporate, but... No, that... Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Oh, sorry, I'm on call. All right. Got to run. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll leave that there. Uh... Look after that bruised big toe, won't you? Oh, I think they might fall in love. I don't want to give anything about this. Rory Kinnear and Phoebe Dennifer there in a scene from, from Bank of Dave. I saw uh, the real Dave on BBC Breakfast during the week at the at the premiere in his hometown in Burnley. He parked the van that he came in badly. He had to leave the premiere to come out to move it. I mean, it, the guy looks like Rory Kinnear and he, he, he sounds like exactly what we heard in that clip. Yeah, I think Rory Kinnear has an amazing ability to completely change mm. himself while not, like, physically alter himself with his, as, as an acting skill. Like, if you see him, saw him in Penny Dreadful, like, he's a different person. His mannerisms, his physicality, like, it looks different. So I think I wouldn't be surprised where he just becomes that person. Uh, is it worth though? Is it worth getting out to the cinema to see this? I mean, it's, I think you you probably know exactly what's going to happen. You know that he's going to call her back before the end <laughs> of the film somehow or other. This again, as Dave said, it's it's the most by the numbers film I've mm. ever seen. There's such little conflict. The baddies are so bad and cheesy. <laughs> like they're like, we are bankers. We make the rules. We decide this. We're going to destroy him from our ivory tower and our sharp suits. All as like middle aged white guys. You saying suits. that's not realistic? <laughs> oh no, it is. <laughs> but I'm sure some of those people have personalities and thoughts yeah, and feelings. Like throwing the moustaches like that. And, and there's no stakes in this. I mean, like you oh, know, right. you know from the opening scene where it's going. Like every step of the way, stars, Dave. Two and a half, like it's it's down the middle, like it's it's harmless, but it's just it's barely a film. <laughs> oh, okay, harmless but not harmful. And yeah. so this is Hallmark, but for men, and it's two and a half stars for me. <laughs> Hallmark for men, Bank of Dave is what we're talking about there. And previously, Dave Hanratty and Gemma Cray speaking to us about Babylon and let the wrong one in. You're listening to Thursday Night's Arena. A young woman with a rare illness, a partner who desperately wants her to get better and friends who simply don't know what to say. Emily Atef's more than ever explores life and death as a young couple is confronted with terminal illness. It stars Vicky Creeps as Helene, a 33-year-old woman with a lung disease that leaves her gasping for air. And Gaspar Uliel as her partner, Matthew, who holds on to the promise of a lung transplant. It's a story of darkness and light, hope and emancipation all sent against the backdrop of a beautiful Norwegian fjord. And I'm delighted that director of More Than Ever, Emily Atov, is with us on Arena this evening. It's it's a difficult subject, death, but it is a one that we'll all have to face at some point yeah. along the way, Emily. What did you want yeah. to explore in the film? Well, first of all, for me, the film is not about death because nobody dies in the film, but it's about... Life, like the the last part of life that we're all going to have. We're all, as you said, we're all going to face it, and we're also going to face that last part of life. It could be a year, it could be a few months, it could be weeks, it could be a few years. We don't know when uh, death is going to come get us, and but we will always, we will also all. I mean, all of us experience um, the passing. Or that that moment uh, uh, of um, uh, of life and loved ones, yeah, and, and loved ones that are sick or or dying. And I was always 
I was always fascinated about that that end part of life, even as a child, actually, but um, not in like human fate, but animals. Uh, we had a dog that was, um, his ancestor were, were like wolves. And when he was old, he was very close to us. He just one day left and we were very distraught and felt very alone. We didn't understand. And a vet friend told us that Actually, because his ancestors were wolves, he was a Belgian shepherd, uh, wolves, when they feel it's their time uh, to go, they, they, they leave the pact and find a little bush in the forest just to leave in, in dignity and, and, and peace mm. and also not to put the t- pact in danger. And that really, um, that rung to me, that, that moved me and I, kind of understood and growing up I realized that we humans have the same fate but ne- nobody ever talks to us about it um, uh, it's very interesting yeah. that you choose you, you chose to say that the film is about actually that that sequence or that period of time before death rather than death yeah. itself because that's that's vital to, to understanding why there's a kind of an optimism in it certainly there was for me as, as I watched it um, you mentioned the, the pet dog as a child that, that had this, this wolf ancestry. I think your, your mother's um, situation as well may have helped you or may have influenced the story that you were telling here. It's true. I mean, this film, I mean, I've made uh, before that like five feature films, some TV and TV films as well. I've never worked as hard and as long on a film than more than ever. Actually, I had the idea 2010, started writing 2011, and we shot 2021, that's 10 years in between. I did other films, but I needed to mature as a, as a woman, I guess, and, and uh, as a filmmaker as well. And during these 10 years, my mother passed in 215. She'd even read the, the, the first version of the script. And, uh, and I did, and I observed how people are around the, the sick we love, how we are with the sick we love or the dying. Mm. And I do find we're really violent in a, we use love as a pretense, but we usually tell the dying, the sick, we love what to do, how to do it uh, medically. But even I realize we never ask questions. We never ask the one leaving or sick, what is it you want actually? Do you want me around or is it too difficult for you? Mm. Do you actually want to be here or do you want to be in your childhood house or do you want to be on a mountain or do you want to, what do you want? Or maybe some people want to be in the hospital, feel, feel more secure. We just assume we know what they want. And, and I think that people that are sick or dying don't have the, Mm. don't dare. They think they're already taking too much space in our lives, us living. And so they don't dare, you know, to say, you know, to their kids or, to their level and you know what it's just too painful to see your sadness i i think i'd rather you um we part now and you just let me you know yeah. and they're afraid of the of the answers of and i find that i don't know i just find it too bad because and to be honest 2015 though i was working on this film i was not ready i wasn't as wise and as generous as the character of the husband will be 
yeah. with Elaine. Yeah, because I wasn't ready. Yeah, because yeah. the, the character of the husband is played by, sadly, the late now um, Gaspar Uliel yeah. uh, as Matthew, and. There is no question, but he loves Helene. Certainly very, it struck me as a very loving relationship. Yeah. But he, he knows more about what he wants to happen around Helene's death than he does about what Helene happened, wants yeah. to happen in that period. I guess that's a big love lesson, isn't it? It's not about what you want. It's about what the other person wants. De- definitely. And I, I mean, for me, I think it's the biggest love story I ever made. I, I ever made. And he takes a decision that is like the, the epiphany of love, meaning though it, does, though it destroys him inside, he accepts her decision to stay in Norway alone and lets her, yeah, and lets mm. her go. Though it, hurt, it hurts him so to go back to France. And, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, he'll look into the mirror and he'll say, I did what she wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And she and that's I think is is very powerful. And my dream is that the audience goes sees this film and they go see it with their partner or their you know or uh, you know their adult children or whatever. And that there's a discussion afterwards that we discuss it, yeah, and not just put this this topic under the carpet, mm-hmm. you know, because we are all. It's the only thing we know when we're born, actually. Yeah. We don't know if we're going to find love, if we're going to find the job we want, if we're going to be healthy. We just know one thing, we will leave this place. Yeah, that is for so, sure. So, yeah. And, and, and what struck me, though, in the communication between um, Matthew, as played by Gaspar Uriel, and Helene, as played by Vicky Creeps, yes, they have discussions, and yes, they have stand-up rows about what might or mightn't happen. But the real moments of communication between them, in fact, are silent and are wordless. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm getting the goosebumps while you're saying that. <laughs> that was my film, but the way you put it, yeah, I, I find that, I mean, more and more in my films, I, the power of silence, you know. Um, it just says so much more than words and words. And actually, there's one of my favorite scenes. It's a, it's, it's a scene where they, they make love. And it's the first time in the film he's accepted her choice and without words, he accepts it. And it's a scene where for the first time in the film, but maybe the first time in their relationship, they see eye to eye. And, and it's, a, it's, a be- it's a beautiful love mm. scene uh, with the, quite long, actually, and without one word. Yeah, it's just like they breathe together. I, I, it precisely, and that scene really struck me. As it, I was thinking of that when I mentioned wordless and silent. In fact, that precise scene, uh, and subsequent to it, there's just this lovely scene where we see them sitting beautifully framed against a window on a, a Norwegian fjord in the background. You can't look much better than that, and they're just sharing. Yeah. A, they're sharing a meal again. Very common thing for people to sit at a, at a, at a table together and not chat all the time, but just to you know, have a bit of my fruit. You don't even have to say have a bit of my fruit. You just hand it over. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's, uh, wow, because it's something quite existential what they're living there and the decisions that he mm. that she's taking, that he accepts. What can you say except sit together mm. and share an apple, you know? 
Yeah, it's beautiful. And, yeah. and we should say that there is another character in in, Nor- in Norway who's vital to the plot as well. This is the character of Bent yeah. as played by Bjorn uh, Floberg and that, that adds a huge dynamic to it as well. He's also a terminally ill man and he knows a lot of what, what's going on for the couple. But obviously... Um, the death of Gaspar Uriel, there, there is something in, in the fact that this film was about this period in, in, in the Helene's life leading up yeah. to death, but then out of nowhere, at what point you, you had finished the film, had you finished the editing, were you in the process of editing when you heard about the tragic accident yeah, this, exactly it, this day a year ago, in fact? I know, I know, I was just, it, it's crazy, this was a year ago. It was such a trauma. It was such a shock. You know, I was with my editor, my French editor, since I live in Berlin. She came to Berlin for a few months. And when we were at the end of the editing process, actually three weeks later, I should have been doing um, ADR. That's like synchronization work with him on the film. And, um, and then, you know, he was... 37 years old, uh, mm. six-year-old son, and the prime of his time. I mean, he started acting very young. He was a star in France, beautiful man, inside and out, very humble, though he was very famous in France, um, very humble, hardworking, um, and I'm really, really happy that I met him. And He's so beautiful in the film, and it's just, um, again, there... There's not even time to talk to him what you want. Uh, how do you want to? It's just, it's like light just takes, it's so violent. When somebody, it's just like one ski accident, boom, and he was gone. Mm, yeah. He had loads of films he still had to do. He was shooting a series he'd done already six weeks. It was just, um, it's just so violent when it goes that way. Yeah. But I guess it's, um, I guess we just have to, take it, you know, just not take it for granted. And of course we can't live every second of life saying, don't take it for granted, but the good moments and we just have to, it's just so fast. It can just leave so fast. And who knows, maybe leaving, who knows, you know, the unknown does not scare me. Maybe there's something much more immense and beautiful when we do leave this planet which isn't that easy always um, what we have to live through but um, still because we don't know it we want to hang on here right yeah because yeah, not too bad here yeah. either let's face it yeah um, yeah <laughs> Emily thank you so much for, for talking with us this evening and thank you so much for, for a beautiful and thought provoking movie thank you thank you so much for talking to me Emily Atif there speaking to me about the film more than ever uh, on the very day that Gaspar Ullier had died this day last year, in fact. The film is available on Curzon Home Cinema and that is our lot for this Thursday evening. I won't be with you tomorrow evening. Kay will be here. Kay will be presenting and there will be albums up for view. Charlie McCarthy will be talking about his play The Bell Ringers and she will be reviewing, uh, previewing Disney's uh, Extraordinary with Jen Gannon. That's tomorrow night here on Arena. I'll be back with you live from the Printworks in Dublin Castle for the big Trust Fest, a Tradfest event on Monday evening. But that is our lot for tonight. Leah Murphy and Amandine Passo-Devine were the researchers. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Bookless was on sound and tonight's programme produced by Sinead Egan. Talk to you on Monday then. In the meantime, uh, Fick No Brain On will be with you after the news.